And I'm, I'm so blessed uh, to be in this church and to have the family that we have. But, but you guys, as a church family, help support our son, our kids. And uh, many of you taught uh, Kyle and uh, our other kids as well and kind of gave them a foundation that they needed to, to grow on and go forth. And so Kyle has been one of those arrows that has gone into other parts of the world uh, and has lived in other places currently. Uh, is moving to Hong Kong uh, this week. And uh, so he's been with us a few days, just finished up. He and his wife uh, work in the, uh, for the last four years in South Korea. Uh, so we're pretty excited about that. We've enjoyed having them in our home and visiting with them. And also I wanted to share with you that um, Kyle and uh, Ashley are our newest missionaries uh, from the, that our church will be uh, providing for. And I say that not in terms of finances, uh, giving them a money, a financial support, but as far as providing a, a mission board uh, for them to work under, uh, they asked if they could do that. And so we met with them and, uh, and our mission boards agreed to do that. So that is really cool. Uh, so you will be getting updates uh, about what their, their ministry and work is all about. Kyle's a teacher, uh, will be a teacher in an international school in Hong Kong. So Kyle, uh, you come at this time and share if you would, son. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, I would like to take a second to talk a bit about, I don't know if the Facebook video is on, so we'll just call them J and B. Uh, they're in a creative access nation. It's a term missionaries use whenever they have to conceal most of everything they do. You can't go on you know, uh, social media and talk about what they're doing. They're constantly having to delete comments from family, even if they're encouraging, uh, because it could get them deported or get the people that they're in ministry with um, killed or, or harmed in some way. And they showed a video. We were in the same mission committee meeting, and they showed a video of an Egyptian woman who was at one of the universities where they're serving, they're not in Egypt, but where they're serving and, and her family had persecuted her very severely, poured hot water on her, her sisters won't talk to her, she's been kicked out and burned, and yet her goal is to uh, basically evangelize her classmates, and so they're raising funds to help keep her in school because she's gonna be this uh, amazing uh, missionary uh, in, uh, in the place where they are serving. I had a chance to interact with um, J and B, whenever my wife and I, we met in Portland, Oregon at a church plant, and they happened to be out there visiting family. But he's, he's from Louisville, of course, she's from here. And I had emailed with his father. His father is a world-renowned New Testament scholar and theologian at Southern Baptist Seminary. His brother is now uh, an up-and-coming theologian at a seminary in Portland, and uh, very, very powerful teachers and professors, and very uh, conservative and strong uh, theologians. And then another brother is there in Portland serving at a church. And as you know, in the Northwest, it's not exactly the most Christian part of the country. Uh, in fact, it's one of the least Christian parts of the country, and he's there serving faithfully. But I told uh, Jay this time in the meeting that he's my favorite one of uh, the family because they have this, such a strong heritage in their family um, because of the incredible work they're doing. Again, creatively finding ways to create small groups. And then these... Um, people from all over the world, uh, but including locals, becoming Christians uh, at great cost to themselves personally. Uh, so anyway, um, while I was in Portland, they were selling their car, and I bought their car uh, at a great deal. And so anyway, I felt connected to them. I didn't know they would be here, and that's how God does it. It was super encouraging, something I wasn't expecting. 
And so uh, you got to experience a little bit of what happens in these creative access places. Things break all the time. Uh, so you got a little taste of that. I think in God's providence, you get to feel that. It's frustrating, um, but you just keep going. And so, as Dad said, I've spent the last four years in South Korea. I am not in a creative access nation. Therefore, local Christians fund what I do. Uh, South Korean missionaries and parents and churches funded the school where I taught there. Uh, I receive a salary, as did my wife at a university there, and I will do the same in Hong Kong. Korea was about 30% Christian. Uh, Hong Kong's about 12% Christian. And so I'm getting deeper into the belly of the beast, as it were. Um, but the international Christian school there is funded by local Cantonese Christians. Uh, you may see them in, a new, in the news a little bit more actively now. That's not uh, what I anticipated. There's always a little bit of political turmoil because they used to be a British colony and they have maintained, as China has taken over, they've maintained a modicum of independence. Um, but that is under threat constantly by the, by the pro-Beijing people who've been planted into the government, the independent government in Hong Kong. And so Christians there have this crazy experience of what is their national identity. They're, uh, in some ways, they're more Chinese than the mainland communists. In other ways, they would say they're not Chinese at all. They have their own local identity. And yet Christians have been there throughout the rise of communism and now um, serving the underground churches in the mainland in ways that Christians in other parts of the world can't because they have access, they have shared culture and things like that. So I get to learn from them and hope that I can encourage and support them. Uh, there are also thousands of Korean missionaries that can get into places that we can't with, our, uh, with the way we look. Uh, we stand out in Muslim countries and Chinese countries, but Koreans get in there and very creatively and tenaciously uh, do ministry. And so uh, for the first time, I was taking mission trips uh, that were missionaries in, in for instance, Russia, uh, whenever an American would be shot on sight, but yet these Koreans have been serving there all through the Iron Curtain and everything. Uh, so anyway, I just wanted to share a little bit of the blessings I've received from being there. These are stories that I couldn't have found out unless I went, and um, I'm super blessed, and I hope to share that with you as my church home, my church family. Um, I was telling Zach, who I met, who just uh, came on uh, staff since I was here last year, um, that um, you know this is the one constant in my life filled with constant change. So whether you're new here or, or whether you've been here forever, uh, just seeing you being here is just an encouragement to me. I'm often in a part of the world as a foreigner where it feels like I can hardly do anything right. And here it's almost to feel like I can't do anything wrong. It's a little too encouraging. I'm not here long enough to make enough mistakes, so that's why I'm leaving this week. I'm just going to keep it positive and, and then bail. Let's get into the message. All right, Dan's got me on a schedule. I don't want to break it. Uh, we're talking about relationships in the book of Colossians. And... Um, I'm a Bible teacher, that's what I do. I teach Bible in, in these uh, uh, Asian countries where there are, there's freedom of religion, so I don't have to hide the way that J and B do, which is a, a blessing, and um, I hope that you'll support them and, and other missionaries who don't have that ability, but I'm thankful to uh, do what I do openly. And we're looking at the Colossians uh, chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. We can leave this slide up for a second. The um, thing I like about Colossians is they're a small town. Um, I, I was looking into it more. Colossians is a powerful book. It's hardly a neglected book in New Testament studies. Uh, very powerful, rich with Christology or doctrines of Jesus. And Dad and uh, maybe others have gone through that already. And always in Paul's letters, there's a turn from kind of, this is kind of the doctrine and the theology that he wants to share with this church. And then here are the practical applications that he wants to make from those things. 
And the thing I like about the context, um, and as I was studying, it's, it's so small, it's all often neglected in the archaeology. They haven't done as much research and digging there because, you know, Ephesus was a bigger city. In fact, Ephesus was kind of the, the Lexington to Versailles. Colossians was a little bit more like Versailles. There's a little bit more going on there. Um, and yet Paul takes the time to write a letter to this otherwise kind of forgotten little city. Uh, it was about the time he wrote this letter, they had an earthquake and a lot of people fled. It's not clear uh, what the church did there at that time. Um, and there was a person who clearly had been with Paul in Ephesus when he planted that church. His name was Epaphras, and then he goes on to his hometown, Colossae, and he starts the church there. Paul gets word of things happening in his third missionary journey. He's in prison in Rome, most likely. In about 61 AD, he writes this letter. Uh, there was a recent film, Paul the Apostle of Christ. Jim Caviezel played Luke this time. He was Jesus in the Passion. He was Luke in this show, uh, movie. And I thought they did a pretty good job. They take dramatic liberties, but they did a pretty good job. He was in prison with Paul, and he's helping him write these letters. And Colossians is known as one of the prison letters. Uh, Colossians, Ephesians, uh, excuse me, Colossians, Philippians, and uh, Philemon, and uh, the other one escapes me uh, right now. But he wrote this from prison, which makes it all the more powerful as we read it. And just like uh, any small town, one of the things he wanted to talk about was their relationships. All these things about Jesus and the gospel are true about us, but what does that mean for our interpersonal uh, relationships and our connections? As Dad shared last week, he had something to say about marriage relationships and about our sexuality, and then he takes a little bit one step out uh, of the kind of circle of intimacy in our lives. He says, what about your coworkers, your friendships, your colleagues, uh, your acquaintances? How are we to interact with them, particularly in the church? So with that said, let's dive in to just the first verse here, Colossians 3, uh, 12. And it says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And he's really appealing to what he said elsewhere, like in Galatians, with the fruits of the Spirit. And he's saying, because you're chosen by God, you're God's people, you're adopted into his family. I was adopted at birth, so that always makes me feel good. But you're all adopted, if you're Christians, into God's family. And you're holy. How many of you are like, I woke up this morning and the first thing I thought about myself is, I'm holy. Thank you, God, I'm so holy. Uh, and dearly loved. Because of this, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. What he's saying is, is because you're a part of this family, this is the dress code. This is the clothes you get. Uh, I used to work at Starbucks. You've got to have an apron, right? When you don the apron, it's time for work. You, you, you keep the standard of, of uh, coffee a certain way. It's kind of like that. You're on this team. You work on this, uh, in this family. This is what you wear. And there is something happening in the language of the New Testament. It's written in Greek. And uh, I kind of finalized my sermon on a 24-hour flight. I didn't have time to simplify everything I wanted to simplify. So I've left some linguistic terms in my slides. Forgive me, but I will explain. And the, the kinds of things that are happening, it's, it's the mood of a word, the linguistic term, and, it, and they are indicatives and imperatives, something that is true about you and something that you were supposed to do. So let's look at a couple more verses from others of Paul's letters to help show you what I'm trying to say here. Notice he's talking about who you are and what you do and the relationship between those things. So in Philippians 2, uh, 
2.12, it says this. This is Philippians 2.12 and 13. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? How? For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purposes. How do you accomplish these things? How do you accomplish this elusive holiness? Oh, God is doing the work. This is what's true about you. You're God, so how do you act like, like what he's already doing in you? Let's look at one more, and then I'll make my final point on this. Ephesians 4.32. Again, Paul gives us an imperative. It tells us something to do, a duty. And he says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. How do we do it? Why do we do it? How do we forgive? How do we put on compassion and things like that? Do we just generate it from our own positive good nature? Or does it come from somewhere else? It comes from your identity. Your identity comes before your duty. So Paul, before he starts talking about relationships, he says you need to remember something because you have conflicts, you're going to have conflicts, you're going to have your relationships under threat, and I know that none of you have any conflicts in any of your relationships, so just bear with me. Uh, but he says, how are you going to overcome that? Are you going to generate it? Or are you just going to one day wake up in a feathery mood and, and deal with it all? Uh, you know, like I think of the, what's the movie, Office Space, where the guy is being hypnotized to help deal with his, and his hypnotist dies, and now he's just stuck in a Hawaiian island and everything is good. Are you going to be like that? No, it doesn't work like that. How are you going to overcome the conflicts in your relationships and as Jesus says to his disciples, be known for your love. Because in Christ, God forgave you. So when you come into a relationship conflict or whatever, you're not thinking, well, I'm just going to generate something. You, you receive something. I'm forgiven. That's why I forgive. Not because I just naturally forgive. I'm forgiven of the offenses that I've committed to God and hopefully to others through life, but first and foremost, to God himself. I have his mark on my soul so I'm going to extend that love and mercy to someone else, even when they don't deserve it. My wife and I visited, um, you know, I'm from Kentucky, I'm from here, I was born in Lexington, um, but I've lived in so many different places, especially now, that my own identity, I sometimes, you know, who am I, what am I, what does it mean to be Kentuckian? So anyway, my wife is from Idaho, and, uh, you know, potatoes are really all they're known for. Uh, but I said, you know, we got, we got horses and, and the, you know, the bourbon trail, and I want to know the, the history and the heritage so we've been going to about one distillery every visit. We went to Maker's Mark yesterday and visited. It's a beautiful place. Um, the tour guides are really hospitable, and the history is just fascinating. And they were explaining how they got the name Maker's Mark, and it was the wife of the kind of founder. Her name was Marge Samuels, and she put the mark of the maker on every bottle. There's a, an S for Samuels, the family name. They put the Roman numeral for four because they had been bourbon makers for four generations. And it was kind of like... We make this kind of product because this is who we are. They have the mark of the maker on them. And uh, yes, I'm using a whiskey illustration, but it's relevant to this culture. I try to think in cultural terms, okay? And, and here's my point, okay? Uh, my first point is who you are comes before what you do. So if you're struggling thinking about how are you going to be the kind of person that God asks you to be, remember, he chose you as you are, um, and he's the one who will do the work. You can literally throw up, um, you know, throw up your, your prayer. I was going to say a Hail Mary, but we're not Catholic. 
Uh, you can throw up your prayer in that situation and just be like, this isn't part of my nature, but it is part of my new nature. And so if you follow Jesus, you need to know that you have that power within you to engage those broken relationships or your own brokenness because you are a Christian. You are marked by God. That is your identity, whether you feel it all the time or not. Feelings are not the best indications of reality, even tr especially true in the Christian faith. If you're following Jesus, you have your faith in him. He has given you the power, and it may be a long time, but you can engage it because he has uh, created you, recreated you, redeemed you to be who you can be, who you should be, who you were created to be out of your brokenness. And part of that will be uh, what Paul will then go on to talk about now, dealing with relationships. So let's look at Colossians 3, verses 13 and 14. Bear with each other and forgive one another. <clears throat> if any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. And so one of the things that we have to do is remember that God's work comes before ours. God's work comes before ours. Um, how do we put, how do we forgive each other? Notice what he says, that imperative. Forgive one another. Why? Well, because God forgave you. This doesn't just come from nowhere. You have to feel or, or think about and meditate on Christ's forgiveness. I thought about this recently. Um, as I said, I, I worked in Korea. I actually worked in a Korean school. It was a Korean Christian school. Um, but I had colleagues who spoke either no or very little English. Now, I worked there for four years, and I, like you, am uh, working on holiness, have not, having not attained it yet, and uh, there was conflicts. There was con a lot of conflicts, actually, cultural conflicts, personality conflicts. If you want to know what cross-cultural work is like, just imagine all your problems now and times them by cultural confusion. Um, this is why a lot of missionaries don't make it. Relationships are the number one reasons missionaries will leave the field. Uh, there's a Gallup poll I, uh, that I researched, a Gallup book. They, they do Strengths Finder and they do all these other books. They were trying to study longevity in the workplace. The number one indication is if you have a, a best work friend. And if you don't, you will often find that you, don't get, you get a lot of turnover. You don't create a culture that builds friendships. Um, so anyway, I was, I, a few weeks ago, there was a conflict and I caught a couple of my Korean colleagues doing something I didn't like now, I love them, we're friends, um, but there was tension there already, and uh, I could smell blood in the water. And I was not putting on <laughs> love, right? It was funny because the whole theme this semester was fruits of the Spirit, but I was, I was slipping. And so um, I dug in. I was right, but I, my approach was pretty hot. It was pretty tense. And what's funny, kind of funny, is when you're in that situation, I know about 5 to 10% of their language, they know about 5, 10, 20% of mine, we're saying things we don't understand. And we were going at it. But I, I caught him red-handed, uh, you know, kind of uh, talking bad about one of, my, one of our colleagues. And um, what's interesting, though, it has a good ending, don't worry. What's interesting is that me and these coworkers, we genuinely love each other. I mean, four years working cross-culturally, you've been through the weeds, and, uh, and they were all kind of feeling warm and wanting to send me off well. And even though, I mean, this fight went into the hallway, it was like the whole school, I mean, the gossip was just intense. Like, what happened? I think, you know, Kyle must have killed her kitten or something like that. You know, it was just, it was bad. We took it into the hallway. We were saying things we don't understand. Both of us knew that we would, we would eventually talk about it again. We had to go to a couple classes. Uh, that's never fun, teaching mad. And then come back, and we resolved it within minutes. Um, because we knew we were going to forgive each other the way we were forgiven. We'd established that in our relationship. 
we had created that long fuse. It's not all fire and dynamite. There was time to kind of snuff it out. And over all these things, to put on love. I want to talk a little bit about, let's go back to the beginning, about what it means to put on love. And again, we've got to start with God's word. When I think about this putting on love, I think of Genesis, right at the beginning, Adam and Eve. Uh, there's this great and sad scene after the fall, Genesis 3, where God puts love on Adam and Eve. And let's just read that real quick, and then I want to look at something else that Peter said. And in Genesis 3.21, Uh, He says, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. What's profound about this passage is they, after they had sinned, had tried to cover their own shame using fig leaves or leaves of some kind, using plant life, something that wasn't going to last. And this is the first account we have of any form of animal death, any form of another living being being killed to cover the shame of God's children. The first sacrifice to show grace. God himself makes them a more long-term leather garment to cover their newfound shame after they had sinned. He clothed them in love. That's our identity too. We're his children. We all have sin and shame. And as you accept Christ, what you're accepting is your own brokenness and his his ability, willingness, and the reality that he has healed you and he will continue to heal you. That's what happens when you extend an olive branch uh, in a situation of conflict, whether it be at family, coworkers, or whatever it is. Uh, Peter also uh, talks about this. He says, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. That whenever you have a genuine love for someone, even if you pop off and and you you get into a conflict, um, if you have genuine love for that person, you leave the door open to reconciliation. You leave the the way open to the conflict becoming something that uh, builds your relationship. Some of my best friends have been made on the other side of some pretty intense conflict uh, because we decided to love each other and genuinely work forward. My second point, then, is that the gospel unlocks the full power of love. There's a lot of talk in our culture about love. Uh, The problem with it is if you just say, you know, love comes first or love wins or any of that, love is dependent upon what you think love is. And love can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. But the gospel defines love. The gospel is what unlocks the full power of love because the gospel shows us what? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't love us just on our best day. He showed his deepest, demonstrated his fullest love to us on our worst days. Paul says that in Romans 5, and John says that as well in 1 John. Same same word, that while we were still sinners, Christ demonstrated his love to us in this, that he died for us. Okay? So basically... um, To be clothed in love means to remember the gospel. Remember, you've been forgiven on your worst day. So whenever someone else has their worst day in front of you, there might be some work to be done. There might be some discipline that needs to happen. Uh, There might be some changes that need to be made. But love can be found there through that process. That's what he's talking about. And Paul wants the Colossians to know that um, as they move forward with their ministry. Moving on to the next verse, Colossians 3.15. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Now, just like then, uh, just like now, it was like it back then, right? Ancient people uh, weren't dumb. They weren't dumber than we are. They might have not not had the internet, uh, but in some ways you could argue they were more intelligent than we are. Uh, There's a lot of competition for your heart. There's a lot of competition for what's going to rule your heart. In, in Korea, 
They have the fastest internet in the world. They're making a big push to everything 5G, and it's great for a lot of their tech industry and stuff like that, but, I mean, the kids are, you think, I mean, American kids are cell phone addicted, no doubt. Uh, so are a lot of us. Uh, but there, it's, it's a huge problem. We actually ban cell phones in our school during school hours. And I always talked about, because I used to work in web design, I was like, these, these designers, they study psychology and try to hack your brain. So even though you're tired, they can find a way to kind of wedge their game or their advertisement or their app into your head and that you'll be engaged. Right? They study it. They try to map your neurology to how they build their, their apps to make them as addictive as possible. In the same way, uh, there are people, there are things, there are, your, your, there are bosses, there are coworkers, there are uh, uh, relatives who compete for rulership of your heart. And there are other virtues other than peace that compete for the reins of your heart to pull you in any direction. Paul knows this. It's true of ancient people, even without apps, and I don't even know if they knew what neurology was. They had competition in their hearts too. And he says, make sure it's the peace of Christ that rules there. Once you remember the gospel, that you've been forgiven, what is more important than that anyway? Other things are going to come in all the time. You're going to walk into a conversation that you realize one of your friends is getting backstabbed, and you're going to attack. I'm really good at that, going on the attack. Is the peace of Christ ruling in your heart? I want to look at one supporting verse in Philippians, another prison letter. And it's, think about this verse in the context of being in an ancient prison. That's what makes it a little bit more life-giving. Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about anything, says Paul from a prison floor. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, because it doesn't always make sense logically, it will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So whatever is ruling your heart, that'll be your defense. And if it's something other than the peace of Christ, that defense will surely fail. And so the point I want to make from this is to be mindful and prayerful about what is ruling your heart. Be mindful and prayerful about what is ruling your heart. And that's point three. You can move on to that slide. Be mindful and prayerful about what is ruling your heart. Take every thought captive is another thing that, that uh, Paul will say. Take every thought captive. Just be sensitive to what's going on. And this will often be revealed in relationship. Uh, it ought to be revealed. And just take a break, think about it, and assess and maybe, um, hopefully, you have the kind of relationship with your friends or your spouse or your coworkers. You can say, does it seem like Christ's peace is ruling my heart? I'm not so sure. Uh, it's great when you have the ability to have relationships like that, which goes well with my next point. Let's go ahead and get to Colossians 3.16. He's kind of giving us the ability to have Christ's peace rule in our heart. He says, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, through psalms, hymns, and songs of the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Okay? Um, now, I like music, but I'm not the kind of person that likes people that sing all the time. Right? Uh, it feels, especially if it's a little too, like, it's like their whole, some, some of my friends, it's like their whole life is the sound of music, you know? And I'm like, it's just too peppy, you know, too chipper. All right? Life is not that good, okay? Calm down. But, there is a sense in which it can be appropriately done where a person, just you know, someone who is lighthearted, not ditzy, but lighthearted, right? Lighthearted, I, I want to clarify, okay? Someone who is lighthearted because the peace of Christ is ruling there, and especially believers, where you, you talk to them, you know, you, you get underneath what's going on there, and it's the gospel just pouring out, you know? How can I feel 
this other way whenever these truths about Jesus are, are true of me. And it's not, you know, I feel like sometimes people are faking it until they make it. Uh, but often, especially in the mission field, especially I work with a lot of missionary kids, um, and their parents come and visit me at PTC, flying in from India and Laos and Vietnam, and you can see it, you know. I mean, they're, they're in the, these hard situations, but the message of Christ is dwelling among them, striving them, right? And this got me thinking about the connection between doctrine and devotion, knowing what Jesus has done for you truly and deeply and how that leads to your devotional life. I want to read, uh, again, something from Paul in Ephesians where he talks about kind of what is the social lubrication in your, um, in your friendships, particularly among Christians. What do you talk about? What drives the friendship? Okay? And he says this, do not get drunk on wine, a very popular social lubricant. Okay? I met some guys yesterday that were socially lubricated, uh, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So again, being in Korea, they actually have the per capita the largest hard alcohol problem in the world. I didn't know that. Every culture has an alcohol problem. Um, even in the Muslim countries, they, they hide it because it's illegal, but they, they do. Um, uh, even Mormon communities, believe it or not. Uh, my wife's from Idaho. There's a lot of Mormons. Um, so every culture has a drinking problem. Korea has the worst. And what I found was, even in, among church people there, is the alcohol culture was tied to, in a shame culture, getting a little bit uh, inebriated was when you could finally be friends. You could finally have enough of your defenses down to share what's really going on in your life. And it's become a very destructive thing. And the Christians kind of have a challenge with the youth creating a different kind of social lubrication. Well, Paul also, in, in the ancient world, he's saying, look, this is the common way of going and having fellowship. We need to create a different way. And it needs to be seasoned with the gospel and a kind, of, a kind of lightheartedness, not ignoring the hardships of life. I hate that, people who just won't engage in any dark part of, of their life. But in, because of the gospel's ability to bring light to all the dark places, it leads to music making. It, it leads to kind of a, a, there's a song in your heart. Um, and I love the old hymns because they're, I mean, they're deep and dark, but they're joyful, like the Psalms, right? David's not hiding anything. We know everything about that guy's life, Right? I mean, adulteries and murders and things, and he's like, God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus himself quotes that on the cross from Psalm 22. And yet what? Lord, your will be done. Your salvation has been given to me. And this is my point I want to make regarding your relationships is, point number four, consider what fuels your friendships. Consider what fuels your fellowship. And it doesn't always have to be drinking that's the problem. Sometimes it's just kind of a neutral thing. You both love sports, wildcat basketball or football maybe not so much football, but something is fueling your, your friendship. Is Jesus a part of it? Is Jesus a part of it? That's what Paul is interested in. Does it lead to enough familiarity that if you guys just broke out in song together, singing to Jesus, it wouldn't be awkward? Now, you don't have to do that all the time, but it is something to think about, and it is a way of gauging what is fueling your fellowship. Okay, as we round third here, last verse, Colossians 3, uh, verse 17, okay? And this is where Paul kind of puts his final stamp on this statement. And he says, And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Okay? Now, relationships are just one part of life. But they're a real indicator 
They're a real indicator for a lot of other things. A real gauge how you react in relationships, how healthy the various relationships you have are among coworkers, family, friends, acquaintances, others, strangers. Okay? And it reminded me of something Paul said in Romans 12, which I just want to look at, regarding the, the holistic nature of the Christian life. And in Romans 12, verse 1, he says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper uh, worship. But the Christian life is your entire self as a living sacrifice. And I remember the first time I studied this verse formally, someone saying, the thing about a living sacrifice is you can crawl off the altar. Right, so you're trying there, offering yourself to God. Why? Because you're so good? No, because he offered himself to you. He is the, he is the sacrifice, right? And he's alive today. He's the real living sacrifice. All this is saying is, be like who you are. Do your identity. You're a Christian. You were saved even on your worst day, you're already secure in Christ. Now we just live in reality of that. How do you respond when something so great has been done to you? And when it comes to your relationships, when it comes to your relationships, whatever you do, are you able to do it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? And so how you build your relationships and what fuels your relationships, leading to point five, these often reveal the status of your hearts. They reveal the status of your hearts. When you dig deep, what's there? Is it all sports? Is it all alcohol? Is it all drugs? Is it all sex? Is it all vices? Or is it all the virtues, the fruits of the Spirit? Is that what comes forth and comes out of you whenever relationship conflicts happen? So it's a good gauge. Now, as we transition into a time of communion, Paul writes another letter to a group of Christians that had a lot of vices, First uh, Corinthians uh, and one of the things he says in chapter 11 before he talks about communion is he says that some of you, when you come to the table, there are differences among you. There, there's conflicts. You're being inconsiderate. They, they were eating a whole meal, and they were kind of leaving poor people out, and he says, basically, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper. It's your own private supper. You haven't thought about the people around you, and he, he says that this is not a time for your private dinner. It's about you and your relationship with God, your, your vertical stance with God. But when you come to the communion table, you also think about the people around you. Uh, Jesus didn't talk about uh, uh, communion when he said this in the Sermon on the Mount, but he talked about whenever the, the Jewish people would go to make a sacrifice, that they should make peace with their neighbors, their brothers and sisters, before they finalize their sacrifice with God. That your horizontal relationships matter to him, and they reveal a lot of times how we are really receiving our identity from Christ. So as you uh, come forward, and, and the way we do it here is you come forward and take uh, communion off the uh, table here um, as a sign of, of your receiving uh, the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. These are symbols uh, of his broken body. Right? You have brokenness in your life. Jesus' body was broken to come and meet that need and heal you. Um, has there been blood spilt, whether literally or metaphorically, in your relationships? Christ's blood was spilt uh, for you to mend your relationship with him. What relationship can't be mended after he's done that? Uh, and finally, um, as you take, if you need help, uh, feel free to ask for assistance. And I think my dad and uh, Pastor Tony might be down here. If you need to pray, if you need any uh, prayer or counsel, uh, they'll be up here as well. Uh, so I'm going to pray, and then we'll transition into a time of communion. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for the gospel as it empowers us, as it gives us strength, as it reveals your, our true identity. Uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, 
companies, there's a lot of organizations, there's a lot of people that would like to define us. Uh, there's a lot of uh, our own brain and the devil himself would like to uh, tell us who we are and how we're supposed to respond. Uh, but we know that you have definitively shown us and changed us and created us to be uh, new in you. We have a new nature, a new heart, heart of flesh, not of stone, that can be open and receptive to who you are. As we come and remember uh, this time of communion that you established with your disciples, uh, to remember uh, centrally how, and how you work to change us, uh, help us who believe in you to come and partake of that and be changed, and those who don't know you to consider afresh uh, responding to your work uh, of the gospel to save them from sin, to restore their honor uh, if they've lost in, in shame. And we thank you for these things. We pray in your son's name. Amen.